clearly. If the peoples of the world are to conduct an intelligent search for peace, they must be armed with the significant facts of today's existence. My recital of atomic danger and power is necessarily stated in United States terms, for these are the only incontrovertible facts that I know. I need hardly point out to this assembly, however, that this subject is global, not a merely national in character. On July 16, 1945, the United States has set off the world's first atomic explosion. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, October 18th. That clip was from President Eisenhower's Adams for Peace speech to the UN General Assembly on December 8th, 1953. Now that speech was part of a broader and really carefully orchestrated campaign called Operation Candor, which aimed to educate Americans on both the risks and hopes for a nuclear future. That work emerged from research in the early 50s by Eisenhower's State Department, which urged less secrecy and more honesty by the government to the general public about the realities of the nuclear age and the dangers of nuclear warfare. After Biden's blunt warning to a group of Democratic donors in New York City two weeks ago that the prospect of a nuclear Armageddon was the highest since the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, Eisenhower's comments bear even more relevance. Now, those comments from Biden have been partially walked back, but they resonated across the political field, particularly in this moment of Russian continued aggression in Ukraine, concerns in China, active missile testing from North Korea. So the threats and what can be done is really growing. Now, what's interesting is you see also this recognition by the American public that the threats of nuclear war are growing, just like the threats to American democracy. But there's growing despondency about what can be done on either front, just as there's growing recognition. On the democracy side, there's a new New York Times uh, Siena College poll that just came out that showed a majority of voters believe American democracy is in peril, but they're apathetic about the danger. Many don't trust this year's election results. An increasing number are open to supporting anti-democratic candidates because other problems, particularly inflation and the economy, have seized their focus. Now, you've got actually 28% of all voters, 40, over 40% of Republicans, say they have little to no faith in the accuracy of this year's midterm elections. So this concern, what can you do in the face of big problems, in the face of nuclear warfare, in the face of attacks on democracy, is really one of the underlying threads or narratives of this midterm election. When things seem so far out of whack, what can an individual do? And that's what we have to continue to focus on, right? Taking action, figuring out what are our possibilities and our steps, and also keeping an eye on the broader patterns of what is happening with American democracy. I do want to take a quick reminder, though, before I keep diving into what's going on this week, about just reporting on midterm elections overall. Polls like the one I just mentioned from New York Times and Siena College about voter perceptions will be coming out at a very steady clip in the next few weeks, as well as an avalanche of polls about particular races, reporting on the slightest shifts in poll results, news about fundraising totals and gaps. Just, I would say, take all of these with a grain of salt. Much can be made of an individual data point, but we need to keep looking at trends and patterns. And these 
individual announcements of doom and gloom can be very demoralizing when you think about what can I do around any of these issues. The other thing to expect in the next few weeks, a lot of lawsuits and a lot of court action. Um, and I do actually want to take a moment to talk about a few things that have happened in the courts in the last week. So on Tuesday, right after I recorded last week's 10 Minutes on Democracy, the U.S. Supreme Court vacated, which means they voided a circuit court decision that required Pennsylvania to count mail-in ballots that lacked dates written by voters on the outer envelope. A lower court had found that not counting those ballots violated the Civil Rights Act. So what does that mean? This is where things get confusing. Back in the spring, both that federal circuit court and the third court circuit and a Pennsylvania state appellate court concluded that Pennsylvania counties must include undated mail-in ballots in their totals. Now, the issue appeared settled. Pennsylvania Department of State released updated guidance, said everyone must count their any ballot return envelope that is dated or undated uh, that has been received in a timely fashion must be counted. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court decision does not change what happens in Pennsylvania. Uh, the Pennsylvania state court decision still means that all Pennsylvania counties have to count and include undated mail-in ballots. What it does mean is that it's no longer authoritative for other parts of the Third Circuit, so that's Delaware, New Jersey, the U.S. Virgin Islands. However, Republican-controlled counties flouted the law in the May primary, and so there's going to be a close watch on this in the upcoming days. Similarly, we're looking at other lawsuits and court decisions. I will brace you, they're mostly bad in terms of the impacts on democracy because there are very few lawsuits that can be filed at this point for proactive pro-voter actions. So mainly what we're hoping for are wins against anti-voting access lawsuits and defenses after the election. So some of the other things that happened this week, Delaware Supreme Court struck down no excuse mail-in voting and struck down same-day registration for violating the Delaware Constitution. You have Ohio Republicans on Friday who are trying to invoke this fringe independent state legislature theory, which we've talked about, which is going to be up in front of the Supreme Court for this next term after the midterm elections for the next Supreme Court term. They've asked this U.S. Supreme Court to review Ohio's state Supreme Court's decision striking down the congressional map there. You saw in Arkansas, a law that prohibits polling place translators from assisting more than six voters will go into effect for this election um, because the lawsuits around it are under appeal. Yeah, just a lot. And it's a lot of really state level and very detailed. You know, another one in 2021, Georgia enacted new legislation that enables unlimited challenges to voter registration. So there have been tens of thousands of frivolous challenges in Georgia, trying to basically prohibit people from being able to easily register to vote. The good news there is that most of the counties in Georgia seem to be rejecting these frivolous challenges. But all of these things in Georgia, in Arkansas, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Delaware, they're all designed to do two things. One is to undermine people's faith in democracy and undermine people's faith in the elections because it demoralizes them, it makes them not turn out to vote. And the other thing is that it can make a real difference in very marginal races. You know, Georgia is a great example where it's likely going to be one of the most uh, closely watched and close state U.S. Senate races and uh, state gubernatorial elections in the entire country. Georgia is also one of two states, along with Louisiana, that allows for runoffs in a general election. 
10 states have runoffs in primaries, but only two, Georgia and Louisiana, have runoffs in a general election. So what happens in close races in Georgia is really important because it could be the one runoff we then face uh, coming out of the midterms. So we'll see a lot more about all of these state and local lawsuits in the final few weeks before the midterms and in the few weeks after. We'll keep talking about them in the coming weeks. Last thing before we wrap up is, of course, student debt. Uh, Yesterday, the Biden administration officially launched the application for its federal student loan forgiveness program. Up to $20,000 of student loan debt forgiveness for certain borrowers. Now, the interesting thing about it is that only one week ago was the beta version of the website launched. So it's a very quick turnaround. And now it means that borrowers have from now until December 2023 to fill out their application. And so if you're making less than $125,000 a year, you can get $10,000 in federal loan debt forgiven. If you qualify for a Pell Grant, you can go up to $20,000. Of course, the political implication of this, the very fast movement from beta to launching that public website, many believe is driven by the political cycle. It allows the Biden administration to keep debt forgiveness in front of voters, especially young voters, in the final weeks of the election. I wouldn't be surprised if we start hearing concerns about the website, if there end up being problems from how fast it was launched, but those will be corrected. But the political implications and the implications for where does our democracy go and who wins in certain elections is a part of every policy action that is happening from now until the election. So something to keep an eye on. But for now, that's all for this week's review of developments in American democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, and I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.